Hello and welcome to another episode of Addiction Audio, the podcast from the journal Addiction. Uh, today I am joined by Dr. Olga Persky. Uh, Dr. Persky, um, thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. Uh, Dr. Persky is a senior research fellow at University College London in the Tobacco and Alcohol Research Group and is here today to talk about uh, her most recent publication in Addiction Journal, uh, which is titled Technology Mediated Just-In-Time Adaptive Interventions, which is uh, the acronym JITI, to reduce harmful substance use, a systematic review. I think probably the first question to ask you is, is do people speak out the acronym JITIs? Um, or is it J-I-T-A-I-S when they're talking to people? They certainly do say JITIs. And Rob, it's quite um, quite uh, interesting to note, perhaps, that um, one of the key researchers in this field, uh, Dr. Stephanie Goldstein, um, who's done a lot of work on JITIs in the area of dietary lapses, um, she's got a paper titled um, Return of the JITIs, um, which I think is quite nice. Nice. I... I... I approve. There's a part of me as a systematic, doing systematic reviews that resents um, clever titles that don't say what they're about. But I, th- I think we can make an exception for that one. I think that's, uh, that's rather good. Um, so we're talking about uh, mobile technology. So uh, mobile phones, interventions on people's mobile phones. So can you just briefly outline to start with uh, how that kind of technology can be used to prevent lapse in uh, uh in drug or alcohol or, t- or tobacco use? Absolutely. So um, over the last decades, we've seen a massive growth um, in ownership of um, smart technologies and uh, mobile phones in particular, uh, and also internet access, of course, which has led to the development of internet-based interventions or smartphone-based interventions. Um, when it comes to lapse risk and how these technologies can um, support that or prevent lapses in people trying to stop using um, harmful substances, um, we know from um, actually now over hundreds of studies using um, what's known as ecological momentary assessments in people's daily lives um, that lapse risk um, is idiosyncratic, which means that uh, it differs between individuals. Um, it's dynamic, so it fluctuates over time, and also it's multifactorial. So it means that um, it's influenced by multiple variables, such as um, strong cravings or negative affect. Um, and this is where technology uh, comes in very handy, given that we keep uh, our phone on us, uh, often in our pockets um, throughout the day. And the technology can then come in here and provide real-time support to prevent these lapses from occurring. Okay, um, that's, that, sounds, that sounds really interesting. I, I do like that phrase, idiosyncratic, dynamic and multifactorial. And it's when you come to again and again throughout the paper, which, which I think is a, it's a rather good way of saying it's, it's complex. Um, and, and also within the paper, um, you, you took some time to explain um, that there were difficulties in defining what JITIs actually were. So they are something that you're studying, you're, you're doing a systematic review, but finding a definition of, of what they are was, was, was problematic. What, why, was, why is getting that definition um, so difficult? Yeah, so I think it's, um, it is challenging uh, and it's also, I think, a sign of that uh, this whole research field is at its very early stages um, 
but uh, the the sort of what the field seems to be converging on at the moment and the definition that we try to use in our systematic review in order to identify the literature that should have been included um, is that um, something can be labelled a just-in-time adaptive intervention if it uh, tries to identify the need for support in real time and then tries to tailor the support to sort of the most prominent uh, factor at that given moment in time. Also, there seems to be convergence as well um, on that um, an intervention can be categorised as a JITI uh, if the majority of the support is automated rather than the person themselves kind of reaching out for support. So uh, one example of that would be an intervention that uh, has an option for users to text um, crave, for example, when they're experiencing a strong craving and then for the support to kind of be uh, delivered at that moment in time. Um, so slightly more automated, but it is challenging. And um, as we do point out in the review, um, we're, we're aware of that we might not have been able to capture all relevant studies, given that it's quite challenging to define. Yeah. Um, and so, so on that, um, looking at the, the results of, of your review, uh, as is not desperately uncommon, uh, one of your findings was that there isn't really enough and uh, what there is is quite varied in how it's done. Uh, what were some of the challenges of, of, of the literature that you found? Yes. So um, I think just to point out that possibly the difference with this review and uh, kind of what we tend to conclude in reviews is probably that we do need more kind of full scale RCTs that are adequately powered to detect group differences. However, I think um, after reviewing the evidence, um, which I can come back to in more detail in a bit, perhaps, um, but we actually concluded that it's probably a bit premature to um, to run full-scale RCTs, given that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done, both kind of conceptually and methodologically, to try to, to come up with um, what these interventions are and then how to go about developing them. So in response to your question about what sorts of study designs uh, the included studies had used. Um, so we did have um, a mix of study designs. So uh, single arm and kind of uh, multiple armed pilot studies. We did have a couple uh, of um, RCTs and then also some mixed method studies that were really interesting um, coupling usage data uh, with uh, qualitative interviews, for example. Yeah, they were really interesting. Um, uh, I think one of the distinctions that you made between some of the studies that that you included were about um, uh, active and passive measurements. And so you active was um, associated with uh, EMA studies, ecological momentary assessment, and passive was about uh, GPS uh, studies. Can you kind of um, explain a bit about ecological momentary assessment? Because it's, it's a really interesting uh, method, but also then about the difference between those two uh, measures and why that's important for your study. When we talk about ecological momentary assessment studies, um, they tend to be technology mediated. They could also be daily diaries in paper format, um, but it tends to in involve repeated measurements over time for a single individual. 
So many EMA studies would um, sample things like cravings or negative affect multiple times per day for a single person over a period of time. Uh, and they tend to be delivered, um, so in the last couple of decades, via dedicated handheld devices. Now, when smartphone ownership is much more uh, common, um, there are many applications that can be downloaded by participants to trigger uh, these assessments. And just to add another um, additional distinction between these types of assessments, so um, they could be fixed in that participants are instructed to complete them um, every evening at 8pm, for example, um, or they might be um, signal contingent in that there will be um, a prompt sent by the device asking people to complete an assessment. And also those signals could be fixed or they could be random. So uh, dispersed across a particular time window, for example. The technology that's available and how it can apply to to uh, to addiction and to, to behaviour change, I think is, uh, it's amazing both in what it can do and in how kind of young a science it is almost. Um, you know, you'd almost expect there to have been four or five times the amount of studies that you identified um, on this subject. But uh, um, but moving to something a little bit more positive, in those studies you did find, um, what, were the, what were their findings? Is this uh, an effective form of intervention? Um, were there any indications as to what kinds of studies were more effective than others? Yes. So for clarification, so it is very interesting with the ecological momentary assessments in that uh, they might appear uh, to be quite a, a novel thing in the substance use literature, uh, but just to plug another large systematic review that I'm co-leading with a team of international uh, collaborators, um, we've actually identified, so that review is looking across um, five different health behaviours with smoking and alcohol being two of them, and we've actually identified hundreds of studies uh, for smoking cessation and hundreds for um, alcohol consumption using uh, EMAs. So they are fairly common. Uh, and I think the next step is to move from observational research to interventions. So how do we actually leverage the data that we can collect from people, but try to make it more helpful uh, for the individuals providing this very dense uh, data? Uh, can you give us a kind of brief summary of what you found? Which, which of these showed promise? Were there elements that showed promise? So in our review, um, we included 14 studies that were reported across 17 separate articles. Um, kind of in terms of where these studies have been conducted, we found that most were conducted in the United States. Um, about half of them targeted alcohol consumption. Um, and it's probably worth mentioning that we did look across um, any harmful substance. So tobacco, cannabis, uh, any illicit substance. Um, these studies, um, I think I already mentioned uh, that they used a range of different study designs. So two of them um, were randomised control trials. Um, but also interestingly, so in the development of digital interventions, uh, there's been a growth of sort of innovative uh, trial designs um, that, that can be helpful for optimising um, and evaluating digital interventions. So these include uh, study designs like factorial um, experimental designs, 
and also uh, micro-randomized uh, micro trials. Um, but we didn't see any of these included studies using any of these more innovative um, study designs, which was quite interesting. What are, uh, what are micro-randomized controlled trials and how would they help? So micro-randomized uh, trials um, are study designs that randomize um, at different decision points uh, the delivery of an intervention. But the difference between um, kind of a standard parallel arm group level RCT is that each individual will have several decision points uh, over a period of time and at each decision, decision point they'll be randomised to receive or not receive an intervention. So over the course of a micro-randomised trial a single participant will be randomised probably hundreds or even more times. The reason why these uh, more innovative trial designs are particularly useful for developing and optimising JITIs is that we can then learn a bit more about uh, what's effective um, in a given moment in time and also look at moderators of effectiveness. But it gives an understanding of, so when, for example, somebody's stress levels are high, um, is it effective to deliver a particular kind of intervention versus not delivering an intervention? So uh, we then have a counterfactual similar to a control group in a randomized control trial, but it's happening uh, for a single individual over uh, over a longer period of time. It's really interesting. So the kind of thing that big websites do on a kind of daily basis, randomize people to do different two different designs many, many, many times and, and get loads of data to try and encourage us to buy more whatever it is we're buying. Um, those kinds of designs. Absolutely, yes. So I, I thought that was also really interesting because you referred to um, the uh, the restrictions on research. So you kind of compared that to the kind of wild west of digital health. Um, is this a... Are there, are there kind of enormous challenges when doing these things in research settings that commercial organisations do not have? And, and is this kind of providing a bias within the field? So the comments on sort of caution around um, the ethics of data collection and particularly moving from um, active measurement to passive measurement, so moving from ecological momentary assessments to uh, the use of wearable sensors, location data, weather data, etc., um, is the slight concern that although um, most of the interventions included in our review were developed in academic settings, uh, there was only a um, sm very small proportion that were conducted outside um, of kind of academic or clinical settings. Um, and of course, in these settings, we tend to hold ourselves to high ethical standards and the research protocols will need to uh, pass through um, an IRB or ethics committee. Um, however, there are, of course, other players in this field and it extends beyond uh, JITSIs through to kind of different kinds of digital technologies for health. Um, and I do think uh, that we need to be a bit cautious in terms of uh, making sure that when, particularly when moving from active to more passive sensing, 
that users are aware of what data are being collected, how they can opt out, should they wish to do so, uh, etc. So um, not to say that the studies reviewed here um, were sort of concerning uh, in that respect, but I think it's, it's something we need to consider kind of um, as a field. Yeah, it's a fascinating area. Um, Were were there any other findings that you wanted to highlight? So we also found uh, that few of the studies included uh, mentioned that the intervention was developed based on theory, but also few studies um, mentioned that they'd used uh, prior evidence. So, for example, evidence from an observational study uh, linking a particular variable with lapse risk to underpin the decision rules of the JITIs. Um, And uh, that's also uh, kind of one of the key take-homes, I think, from this review, in that we do need uh, more careful thinking about how we go about developing these interventions and making sure that uh, they're either um, developed based on theory or quite strong uh, kind of data-driven approaches to try to learn um, about individuals. Also, when it, when it comes to um, user engagement and effectiveness, so what we found was that um, users were, were typically quite happy to engage with these interventions and um, engagement was moderate to high. We did see slightly lower engagement in the studies targeting cannabis use. Um, and in terms of effectiveness, um, this was uh this was mixed um and few studies reported being uh sufficiently powered to s- detect group differences uh between the jitai arm and the comparator um so here i think unfortunately we don't have any strong conclusions as to whether or not the jitai's um impacts key outcomes of interest so I, I I thought that your findings on um, engagement were really really interesting, um, and that's something you you have a separate systematic review about. Um, so uh, you know it's it's that thing, isn't it? It's like you know you get an app, uh, and you're measuring whether this this app is uh, is effective or or not effective. But actually, if that person spends four hours a day staring deep into that app and engaging with it fully it's likely to be more effective than someone who looks at it a couple of times on the first day and then largely forgets about it until there's a, a pop-up on it. So, I mean, how, in the in the overall area of mobile health, how do you go about uh, encouraging engagement and, and then measuring it and controlling for it in studies such as these? Yeah, so that's certainly uh, an area uh, close to my heart. It was the focus of my PhD research. Um, and in this uh, particular review, what we saw um, was a very or the a common strategy for encouraging engagement was payment, uh, particularly for completing the EMAs that were then used to underpin the delivery of the intervention. Uh, it's of course not uh, the only strategy that can be used to increase engagement, um, and also of course in terms of um, cost effectiveness, it's probably not the most useful strategy, given that uh, one of the key selling points of digital interventions is their scalability um, at low cost per additional user. So if we then um, pay participants for completing EMAs, it kind of um, uh, outweighs that benefit, right? 
um, that's a particularly challenging um, aspect for for Jitsai's. Um, I mean, the reason why I became interested in this area in the first place was actually coming out of my engagement research, uh, where I saw that key drivers of engagement uh, across uh, different types of interventions, including apps, um, is the sense of um, kind of perceived effectiveness and personal relevance. And also that um, typically with digital interventions, uh, people experience them as not being sufficiently um, sort of responsive to um, to their um, their needs, essentially. So I was actually coming to this from the perspective that Jitsai's, given that they are dynamically kind of adapting to the person as they go through um, their quit attempt or reduction attempt, uh, that it would have the benefit of being able to engage people really well, given that it feels more um, tailored, more personalised. That's why I was very interested in this particular outcome. Of course, effectiveness itself is very important, but I think engagement is a key kind of mediator of that that we need to be aware of. So given that uh, the majority of interventions reviewed here did include some form of payment, I think we also probably need to look at that high engagement rates with a bit of caution. Uh, And it would be very interesting to see how it kind of um, translates into studies not relying on payment. You mentioned that some of these were mixed method studies that that used qualitative data as well. Oh, there was a really lovely example about someone who was talking about a smoking cessation um, jitai that had reminded him of the reasons he didn't want to smoke, but in doing so had reminded him that he quite wanted to smoke. So, like, to a sense, it kind of focused him on the thing that he had been trying not to focus on. Is it, I mean, was this an isolated um, incident or is this something that, that people developing JITIs should be aware of? So I think it is something that uh, developers of JITIs and then also researchers working in the space where ecological momentary assessments are used should be aware of. Um, that there are a few uh, different kind of unintended consequences. So, f- for example, the one that you just mentioned uh, that it might remind people of wanting to, for example, smoke a cigarette when they were in fact not thinking about it. Um, the the other potential uh, kind of unintended consequence is what's known as measurement reactivity, so that uh, the measurement itself might then have an impact on the behaviour. Uh, personally, I wouldn't necessarily call that or think that that's a bad thing, given that we're trying to support people to change their behaviour. But it might mean that it becomes a bit tricky for kind of causal inference or understanding what is driving the effectiveness. So in reviewing these studies, given that we weren't accessing kind of the primary data, it's a little bit tricky to comment on whether it was a a common thing or sort of more of an isolated instance. Uh, It was certainly mentioned across at least a couple of studies. Um, so I think it, it is certainly something that we need, need to think about. However, the benefit of the JITIs is, of course, that uh, they're providing an intervention and not just measuring something. So hopefully, uh, if uh, kind of the measurements made the person then think about that they want to smoke a cigarette, at least something was provided to kind of help them cope with that.
it, uh, it's a fascinating area and uh, I look forward to reading more on it as, as the, the research area progresses. Um, whilst I have you on the, um, on the podcast, uh, I'd just like to briefly touch on uh, a commentary you wrote in Addiction Journal about um, uh, regulations for uh, apps, mobile health apps. Now, this is a, a really complex area. Uh, can you try and sum up a really complex area in a, in a, in a short amount of time? Um, what are some of the problems with um, regulating and registering uh, medical apps and perhaps some of the benefits too? So we've got an area where um, mobile technologies has sort of uh, grown sort of separate to um, a regulatory framework, which means that most people would access um, apps for addictive behaviours through uh, commercial digital market spaces like app stores. Um, and in the last decades or so, uh, there's been more and more uh, regulatory kind of um, efforts to try to, to look into um, how these technologies should be um, or if they should be prescribed or accredited in, in any way. Um, so given that we've already got this kind of market space um, with a whole host of different apps available, so I think um, Jonathan Bricker summarised it in his commentary in the same, um, responding to the same article that I did, um, that there are about 400 smoking cessation apps uh, available, um, English-speaking apps, uh, which is a lot. Um, and that they've been downloaded about 33 million times. So we can see that these apps are popular and they are being used, um, which then raises the question, well, how can we make sure that um, that people interested in using these apps um, have access to high quality ones that are based on evidence? Because it should also be noted that the majority of the apps available on these marketplaces are not based on uh, evidence. Um so the different options uh, for regulating these technologies um, are, for example, that they could be regulated as medical devices. Um, and we're seeing um, different ways of um, trying to kind of navigate this regulatory space across different countries. So um, Zani Kajasari and her colleagues in, in their piece um, really nicely outlined how different countries have uh, have approached this. Um, and I think what seems to be a big question here is that it doesn't quite seem appropriate for um, all apps focused on addiction to be classified and regulated as medical devices. Um, and if so, then uh, what kind of level of evidence is then required uh, in order to to sort of accredit these apps and make sure that users are kind of funneled uh, towards the evidence based ones, um, I was I was particularly fascinated with the uh, and, the, and you see this in other areas like uh, this this was an issue in in vaping a while ago about by the time an app has become accredited um, or registered as um, as a medical intervention has gone through those processes, it will probably be an app that's based on technology that's becoming obsolete um, and so you almost get into this situation where the process to register the app is 
it prevents that happening almost, um, which pre- provides new challenges for, for regulatory authorities and the app developers alike. Absolutely. It's a fascinating area of study. Uh, so what do you think is, uh, what are the next steps for, for you as a researcher and for this field? So I think after having conducted this review and in discussion with uh, collaborators in, in this field, I think what's quite clear is that we need more work on what JITSIs are and how to go about developing them. So, for example, do we need to take a data-driven approach and conduct a bit more observational work uh, before uh, developing these interventions and also making use of computational models uh, to t- try to get more of a of a um, of an overview of um, sort of how these processes and substance use unfolds over time for different individuals in order to develop uh, better tailored interventions. Um, I also think that um, from this review, um, we also need a bit more work looking into how to use passive sensing to detect variables of interest particularly given that uh, it's quite burdensome for participants to complete these ecological momentary assessments in order for the interventions to uh, to run. Um, so those would be my, my top things going forward. Uh, fantastic. Um, uh, fascinating as always. Uh, Dr. Olga Persky, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.